Hey everyone, my name is Maggie Tang. And I'm Elena Cho. And welcome to Gourmand, a show set on empowering the next generation of food lovers and leaders. Today we have a super awesome guest on the podcast, Cedric Nikase. He's the co-founder of Viventer and the director of operations for Make It Nice. I first met Cedric when I was interning at I Love Madison Park two summers ago, and he was the wine director at the time. He is one of the most thoughtful and kind people that I know, so we're super excited to have him on the show today. On today's episode, we chat with Cedric about his upbringing and interest in wine, his time at 11 Madison Park and rising to number one in the world, and also co-founding his wine brand, Vivantaire. Let's dig in. Welcome to Gourmand, Cedric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to have you on the pod. Um, so we wanted to start with the very beginning and kind of your upbringing and where you grew up and uh, how food and beverage and hospitality may have factored into, I guess, your childhood? So um, I, I would say, well, I'll, I'll bring it all the way back. So I was born in Belgium, um, in, in, in Brussels itself. Um, I lived there with my parents until I was five. And then my family uh, was relocated from my job, my dad's job uh, to the United States, um, very briefly in Syracuse, New York. And then in, uh, we moved to Cheshire, Connecticut, um, where I lived basically my, my entire childhood until I went to college. Um, the interesting and fortunate part, I guess, of my upbringing is that I was able to um, spend the summers with my grandparents in Belgium, um, basically from the time I was six uh, until the end of high school. Not quite till I graduated, but pretty close. Um, and so, although I will admit at the time, it was not what I wanted to be doing. It sounds really great, but when you're like 10, and you don't have any friends in Belgium, and you just go spend the whole summer with your grandparents. Um, it sounds better now than it was in the moment, um, but it, it, it allowed me to experience, you know, two vastly different cultures. I also spent a lot of time with my grandparents, which, so in hindsight, was very cool. Um, and and I think that's a little bit where my love of hospitality in general came. Um, so my uh, maternal grandfather was a, he's, he's kind of like the progenitor of my brother and I. Um, so he was a physicist and professor and, you know, like, like a really intense intellectual. Um, my brother is now a rocket scientist, literally works for NASA. Um, but the other half of my grandfather is that he was very involved in like the Somalay societies uh, of Belgium and like administered, I don't know the exact full story, but it was you know, very involved in that sort and was what, what I would consider a bon vivant. He ate well, he drank well, he loved restaurants, he loved going out to eat, um, and he collected wine, which sort of in my in my world has sort of been a bit part of it. Um, and then in my paternal grandparents, although vastly different in so many different ways, um, they they always had people over. Um, it was it was really um, kind of amazing especially my my parents are much more social now but when I was growing up my dad was so focused on his career that um he just didn't see especially to to me as a kid didn't seem like he was having you know out with friends ever you know just didn't have a social life like that although like I said that that has changed a lot um which I think is awesome um but his parents 
always had people over, we're always going somewhere. And, uh, and that idea of like entertaining and hosting people, um, I, I think just kind of became ingrained in me. Um, I will also say there was, you know, not, not like an inappropriate amount of alcohol, but there was always alcohol around with like sort of the saying that no good story starts over a glass of water. Um, I think when, when my grandparents were hosting, um, they were always, you know, there was always a glass of wine or a little whiskey or, you know, whatever, whatever was being drank or beer, you know, and, and like I said, no, no one was ever getting smashed. Um, but everyone always was, you know, th that was entertaining as you offered your guests a drink. Yeah, I love that. Um, and yeah, I can imagine kind of growing up in that sort of environment would, you know, give you certain perceptions of some of the great things about gathering and drinking together and eating together. Um, so, so you moved to the U.S. and then did you have any inkling, um, you know, as you started to shift out of childhood and into adulthood, that was what you wanted to do? I'm curious about where your career kind of started out. I, I didn't. So my first hospitality job, which is kind of embarrassing, but kind of funny or whatever, um, I actually worked at McDonald's when I was in high school for a summer. Um, which I, I don't know what I learned there. I actually learned a very important lesson there. It's not sure. I know exactly what I learned there. Um, and it, it's something that, I, that I've talked about a lot in, in a lot of different references, including that you can learn something anywhere or from anyone. Um, so one of the, the things that I learned at McDonald's that I still carry with me today is when you pay for something in cash and you give change or receive change, most people now, and you see it all the time, will put the dollar bill on your hand and then we put the change on top of the dollar bill, which often becomes like a like a juggling thing. And you like change goes everywhere. In the training videos at McDonald's, they instructed you to put the change first and then the bills on top, which is such like a simple thing, but it like it actually like makes a difference. Like that's actually like a good idea as opposed to the opposite. So that's what I learned at McDonald's, and everyone can take that that with you. And next time you go to the grocery store or whatever, you pay for something in cash, you'll be reminded of that. Um, but I didn't, I didn't really have any inkling of working in hospitality. Um, I played sports somewhat seriously. I, you know, it's, it's always hard not having played in college, let alone professionally, um, to say that I played sports, you know, at a serious level. But um, that, that idea was derailed when I tore my ACL in high school. Um, but, and so that's what my whole focus was. I went to college. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to teach, but I really only wanted to teach so that I could coach. Um, and then I started, started working to help pay bills in college. Um, I bartended a bunch. Um, and then once I graduated from college, um, I really didn't know what I was, what I wanted to do. There's no coaching opportunities. I also did terrible as an undergrad. Um, I, I still have recurring nightmares of going to get my diploma and then my diploma not being in a folder that they, they hand me. That's actually how terrible I did in college. Uh, I did graduate, but uh, barely, we'll call it that. And so I, I was working in restaurants and, you know, really, and really liked it. Um, I, I think partially because I was making it, what I thought at the time was good money. Um, I went to grad school. Um, I did my, my master's in social studies education. And then um, student taught for a very brief period of time and learned through that experience that I definitely didn't want to teach. Um, so there's been a few times in my life where I've had these sort of like wake up moments where I took stock of what was going on and I was like, okay, well, if I don't like teaching, what else is there? And I was like, wow, well, I'm good at working in restaurants. So let's see what happens there. Uh, um, and so I, I sort of 
put everything aside and, you know, kind of, I won't say worked on my craft because that through the lens of now having worked at 11 Madison Park for so long that I wasn't working on my craft. I was just going to work every day with the intention of staying, going to work at that place every day for a little longer than, than I had probably planned on. Um, through probably, I don't know, four years of, of that, something like that. Um, I, I really enjoyed it and, you know, learned a lot. Um, and I was working for this guy. I was living in Ithaca, New York, if I haven't said that. Um, I was working with this guy going to a bar and then opened sort of a, like a gastro pub kind of thing. Um, and through, through living in a college town, I basically had um, every school break other than summers off. Um, not by just the restaurant, everything was closed, you know, there's no students, you know, shorter breaks, everyone sort of leaves town. Um, and, you know, luckily in Ithaca in the summer, there's still kind of vibrant culture that goes on. So um, they're, they're still, I remain gainfully employed then. Um, but so through a friend who was at Cornell, I worked in New Jersey at a fairly high-end catering company. Um, and it was the first time that I worked with like thoughtful, beautiful food and like, like a real chef and not to, to demean anyone that I worked with in Ithaca, but there was a different level. Um, and you know, it, it was just, it was an ex part of the food world that I'd never experienced before, you know, thoughtful service and steps of service and all these like things that, um, just weren't part of my life. And, and I really liked it and I thought it was really cool. Um, apparently I did a good job. Um, cause that company offered to, um, hire me full time and I kind of li lived out my commitment to the guy I was working with, um, prior and stayed from the end of the school, school semester, um, and then moved, um, literally like two days later and started working this catering company in New Jersey. Um, and that's kind of where everything gets a little more serious. Um, that was in June of 07. Uh, I got laid off from that company in April of 08. Hence the second time I took stock of what I was doing with my life and um, where I was. And um, that, that moment, that year of being sort of unemployed um, from April of 08 till March of 09 um, gave me a lot of clarity and really let me focus on my life and figure out um, all these different steps that, that I wanted to take and needed to take to, to grow my career in hospitality. What led you down like the world of wine? And I think that it's pretty, it's less common for, I guess, people are, I used to know what a sommelier is and like what they do. Like, how did that come to be? So I, I wish I had a really romantic answer for that, to tell you the honest truth. So I was a little bit older. So, you know, we're, we're talking 2009. Um, I, I was turning 30 um, and, and I really wanted to focus my hospitality career in New York City and, and I thought about different ways that I could move up in the world and um, for whatever reason I thought there was two ways I'm sure there's there's others but at that point there was two um, one was to become a manager and then move up and be you know floor manager service director assistant general manager you know whatever whatever, whatever. Um, the other one was to become a sommelier and then there's no other step you're a sommelier and then you're a wine director and the way I looked at it is that a wine director is basically on the same level as a GM you're a little more specialized but you, you sort of have um, similar but different responsibilities and are on that same level of the, of the hierarchy. And so in my total naiveness slash 
I would hate to admit, arrogance. Um, although I, I will say I, I was pretty down and out at the time. So I don't think there, there was a lot of arrogance. I think it was really, you know, 90% naive and 10% arrogant. Um, I, I was like, okay, being a sommelier sounds, sounds like totally doable. There's just like a bunch of information you have to learn learn it and then you apply it every day during service and so i was like okay i'm fairly smart that's the arrogant part um i will learn all that information and and then become a sommelier and and i you know for for lack of saying anything else like i kind of did that i i don't know nearly as much about wine as many 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 of my peers or probably as much as i should know um but i i learned enough that someone gave me opportunities to sommelier and um, kind of worked my way up the hierarchy. I, I worked at a restaurant called Oriole for just short of three years. Um, and that's where I got my first sommelier position. And then after almost three years there, I transitioned to Love Madison Park um, as a sommelier. And then sort of year after year, sort of climbed that ladder at, at EMP. Um, first to a supervisor position, then to head sommelier, and then finally in 2015 to, to be the wine director. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us more about your time at EMP? So I, I joined the team at EMP in February of 2012. Um, my idea, because I, I was really, you know, in, in this this idea of building my career and trying trying to like, you know, have a career in, in restaurants in New York, I never intended on staying for a long time. I thought two, three years max, put it on my resume, learn a bunch of stuff, meet some people, taste some good wine, and then move on and apply and apply the trade somewhere else. The thing that... I, I was always and still am fascinated at EMP is that it's a place where, you know, restaurants, generally speaking, really value like hard work, like working the floor and being there every day. And, and there's a few people that get to use their brains and everyone else is just like a workhorse. And at EMP, it was different. Like everyone's opinion mattered. Anyone can contribute. You know, you were constantly like stimulated in a, in a variety of different ways, including using your brain. And that, that really has, has led me to stay minus my one year for sabbatical from, you know, the last year. Um, and, and so that, that for me was always this sort of the, the, the thing that I thought the most about EMP is that it was a place where my opinion was valued and where I had the ability to contribute intellectually as much as I did by like physically working the floor. Um, and I, and I still think that's fairly rare in the restaurant world. There's, there's clearly, and, and as, and as restaurants become better organized businesses, I think there's more opportunity for that. Um, but for me, EMP offered that better than, than anyone else did. And, and I think still does a really good job of that, um, for people now. Yeah. And so being at EMP for that long, did you notice any shifts kind of long term in terms of how the restaurant ran or sort of the culture or anything um, compared to how it was when you started? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, honestly, there, the restaurant changes, I won't say on a daily basis, but because, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's still a restaurant. We still have, still have fairly high turnover compared to a lot of industries. It's very young. Um, I, I've been the oldest employee at EMP for a long time now, um, which is sort of demoralizing, but also makes me, keeps me young, I think. Um, and so I, I've seen the culture totally change over and over. And sometimes it's in a really good place. Sometimes it's in a less good place. 
Um, but the idea that everyone is important and that everyone's opinion matters has sort of kind of been the, the through thread of, of the entire time there. Um, and so I think that's been really important. You know, I think there, there's been a few stages, you know, I think chasing number one, number one in the world was definitely like a big moment. Um, so I started in 2012 and I think we just hit number 20 on the San, what was San Pellegrino list now is the, just the 50 best list. Um, and, and I think, at least for me, it wasn't quite real that we could be number one yet. So that wasn't the focus. It was still like, how do we get to number 10? How do we, how do we climb the ladder? How do we become better? Um, but then probably in like 2015, 2014, it became like a real thing of like, we, we could be number one in the world. Like that's, that's possible. And how do we do that? And then that created a culture of people like really just dialing everything in and trying to make everything as perfect as possible all the time. Um, and that obviously through 2017, when we actually became number one in the world, was a big cultural thing. And then it became, you know, once you've, once you've achieved sort of the ultimate goal, which is, you know, sort of a double-edged sword because, you know, as, as far as goals go, once you hit number one, what's, what's the new goal? Um, and as a culture that was so, um, specific about that being the goal and that being the thing that we were all striving for, um, it, you know, it took a while to like kind of figure out what, what, what was next. Um, and I, and I think, so I think, so you have that sort of leading up, you have the what's next phase. And then I think one of the things that's going to make this next chapter of 11 Madison Park really amazing is that, you know. I think we get to start from a blank slate a little bit and get to sort of reestablish what our goals are um, and sort of move that forward in a, in a new phase, which would, which would be really exciting. Yeah, yeah. And I think one really incredible thing about that restaurant, I mean, with me just being there for a few months, is like just the focus on education and really like pushing employees to learn and like grow and everyone's like very passionate about doing so. And I think that's like pretty unique compared to other restaurants. Yeah. I, I think the education component, you know, and it, it's, there, there's been through my time at EMP, it's kind of, it's kind of funny because we have so many sayings and I kind of hate all of them. And I'm sort of the one who like this, this saying doesn't actually make sense. So one of the sayings is that we're like graduate school for hospitality. And I actually, I actually totally disagree with that. We are a little bit, but we're not, we're also like, high school for hospitality and then we're also college for hospitality it totally depends on where you come in in your career because wherever you are in your career there's so much to learn and so like yeah you may have worked like like i did in restaurants for you know a, a decade plus but when i rolled in i was like holy shit i don't know anything and, and was able to learn. And then, you know, Maggie, you saw this, like there's a bunch of people who were like 20, 21, 22, that they're really just starting out their careers where like everything is new. Like this is how you carry a plate. This is why you put silverware down in a straight line across the, the table. Like all these like little technical things that that's not, that's not graduate school. That's like, that's like high school. And, you know, and I don't mean that in a demeaning way because that, that's like a thing that everyone needs to learn. Um, and we're not just teaching advanced things. We're teaching everything to anyone who wants to learn it. And, and so that, um, that part of EMP and the education thing is, is really amazing. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. Um, and so I guess turning away a little bit from EMP, I'd love to hear about 
your wine brand, Terre and how that came to be. What year was it that that, that started? So, so it officially launched in August of 2020. So, so it's fresh and, you know, just, well, it's actually just off the shelves because we've sold out, which is a good thing. Um, it's vintage. So Vivantaire um, was something that came to life sort of, I would say, accidentally on my part, very not accidentally on my partner's part. So um, there's essentially four groups of partners that are involved in this. So me is sort of like the intermediary. I'm the expert on wine and the way wine tastes and whatever. Um, then you have Max and Rosie Asulin who are involved in uh, Rosie Asulin, the fashion line, um, which is very sort of luxury and fancy and amazing. Um, they know nothing about wine. Um, they, they're the impetus for the project. They, they fell in love with, with wine and specifically natural wine, and even more specifically orange wine a few years ago. And in their creative sense, they, uh, they decided they wanted to get involved and make their own wine, um, not for like any sort of like weird stance. They just wanted something of their own that they could share with their friends, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, and, and I can sort of relate to um, in, that's how I feel about EMP. It's like every time somebody walks in the door, you want to like welcome them home, even though it's, it's our home. Um, and then we have Patrick Beaujou and his partner, Justine, who are the winemakers. And they, they actually do all the hard work, which is making the wine. And then the fourth group, there's a bunch of like creative people who like design the label and help with marketing and, and you know, like do all like the things that I don't know any, anything about and can't help with. Um, and so we created this natural wine. Um, I've really taken one of the actual sayings in EMP that I love that I think works really well. And, it, and it's that, that idea of seriousness. And the wine isn't meant to be taken seriously by you guys as a consumer. It's supposed to be really easy. It's fun. It's delicious. It's not super expensive. Um, and, it, and it's supposed to be something that you share with people. But the flip side of that is in, in the production of the wine and all the things that go on behind the scenes that don't matter when you're pulling the cork and drinking a glass, we take all that so seriously. Um, and, and we essentially do that so that you don't have to, and that, you know, you know, by putting my stamp on it and Max and Rosie and Patrick, um, that the wine is well-made and it's all, all those things. Um, but when you get it, you don't have to think about that. You can just like pop the cork and share it with your friends. Um, and that's sort of the ethos uh, of the wine, but it's natural wine. It's a little funky. It's a little weird. Um, but it's, it came out super delicious. Um, I will say that launching a brand in August of 2020 um, was not I, an ideal time, I guess. You know, I, you know, I don't know if there is an ideal time, but um, there, we received, there were a lot of obstacles that we didn't anticipate having when we kind of cooked this idea up. Um, most notably, the you know, restaurants were open, especially, um, I mean, there was outdoor dining, but there, you know, People, people who buy wine for restaurants were, were trying not to buy anything. And, you know, it was hard to like leverage, leverage friends and co colleagues. Um, but, you know, we didn't have a full-time salesperson. So I did a bunch of that with Max. Um, I, I, I have the utmost respect for Max and how hard he works and how tenacious he is. I'm a terrible salesperson. I'm surprised Max hasn't tried to fire me yet. Um, and and he, he is really ambitious and, and works as hard as his ambition um, is it's really it's really impressive.
Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about the two wines that you guys have at Viventer? I've only tried the Gamay, but for everyone listening, it's amazing. And the label's super cool. So everyone should check it out. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, for, for liking it. Yeah. Um, so we did, we made two wines. Um, one, one is a little more straightforward. The, the red is, is Gamay's from Beaujolais. Um, region in sort of central France. Uh, it's from a single vineyard in the crew of Moulin Avant. Um, but because of the nature of the way we're making the wine and where we're making the wine, it's declassified. So it's just known by the, the its initials, which are MVB, which is uh, Moulin Avant Beaujolais. Um, and, and I think that, although accidentally, will be how all the wines are, are known going forward by some level of initials. Um, and then the second wine is an orange wine. Um, one of the things that I had to embrace, and now that I've embraced it, at least on this part of my life, I'm like all for it, is that when you're in the natural wine world, there, there basically are no rules. Um, and once you kind of embrace it, there are no rules, there are no rules. And so the wine is a, a blend of three grapes. It's a skin contact, reverse demeanor, um, direct press, um, which means that the, it doesn't come in contact with any skin, it just kind of drips out of the press um, when it's done in Sylvaner and then Skin Contact Uni Blanc. Uh, the Gewürztraminer and the Sylvaner are from uh, Alsace and the Uni Blanc is from the Languedoc. Um, and the wine is made in Auvergne, um, which is sort of in the middle of the two. Um, and that's what I mean by there are no rules. Like we just blended different grapes from different regions in a third region. And we actually came up with something that is, is pretty delicious. Um, and orange wine is not my thing. It's not something that I've ever like really championed in my career, but this is sort of, um, it, it tastes great, honestly. Yeah, it's just like so fascinating to hear also just, you know, I think you see the wine, but you don't realize all the different components that have to, have to go in, um, all the different partners that have to kind of, you know, put that work in to make it happen. So yeah, congrats on the launch. It's super exciting. Thank you. And, uh, and so kind of to plug the, the future of the wine, uh, in, in 2021, we're gonna have four wines. We, we've increased production on the, on the red and the orange, so it should be a little more readily available. Um, and then we have super limited production of a sparkling wine, a rosé petnap, um, and then also a white wine from Muscadet. Um, those two, the two new cuvées, are hopefully gonna be in the US called the first week of May. Um, and then the other two, probably right around July 4th. Um, so, so exciting. And, you, you know, and, and again, the idea of like growing, we, we basically tripled production um, from year one to year two, which is again, during, during a pandemic is like, it's like a hard decision to make, right? You know, and one of the things in the wine world that, that is maybe unique, I don't, I don't know, I can't think of another uh, industry that's like this. Maybe if you, if you want to put in like, making whiskey, you know, the aging of that. Um, but when you're making wine, you're basically making decisions a year plus out. So we were, we were talking about our 2021 sales before we had sold a single bottle in 2020. And that's like a, I, I don't know. I, like I said, I don't know that there's another business like this. Like distilling and aging whiskey is sort of the only thing, but you can sort of, you know, you don't have to make a 23 year age whiskey. You can reduce the amount of aging and you can distill year round. You can only harvest wine once a year. And so during that harvest, you have to decide all the things you have to decide. And you're, you know, natural wine, we're lucky. We're only a year ahead of time. 
in in other wines, if you want to make like Cabernet in, in Napa Valley, you're basically two years ahead of time. Um, so it, it is, it is, it freaks me out at least. I don't know if it freaks Max out, but um, he, he exhibits more confidence than I do. <laughs> um, and I'm curious, how do you think that the wine world is changing? I feel like, um, like how brands are changing, how wines are changing, and like what the future of like the wine industry holds. So I, I think the future of the wine industry is wide open. Um, I think we're, we're like literally in the middle of a generational shift right now, which is exciting. Um, you know, my, my parents' age, you know, the, the, the baby boomers uh, or, or the boomers are, are aging out of being the most important consumer. And there are people my age, early 40s, that are becoming sort of the, the the more moneyed consumer. And then you guys are, are coming of age in a world where a lot of different things matter other than just sort of tradition. You know, when you think about like what my parents drank and even what my generation drinks, the idea of prestige is, is very specific. It's like Burgundy, that's prestigious. You know, Fougere, which is a region that's in the middle of nowhere in France, is not prestigious. And those two things really matter. Um, and I think in, in, in the younger generation and even in my generation too, as people are starting to drink wine, things like sustainability matter and things like being green and all, all these things that like never mattered before in the wine world are really starting to be the most important driver. Obviously the wine doesn't taste good. Um, that, that'll never change hopefully, but the, the, the ethos of, of the brand or the winery matters much more than it ever has. Um, you know, in 50 years ago, no one cared if Chateau Margot used chemicals in their farming, didn't pay their migrant laborers. Like they, they, those things weren't, weren't a relevant thing. Not that Chateau Margot did any of those things or didn't do any of those things, just using, you know, a, a big brand. Um, and now those things matter as much as anything else. Um, and I think that that's the biggest change. I think people are also more open to different stuff. Like I'm still not behind the wine in the can thing. That's not, that's, that's not my jam. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that that, that for me at least, and, and people who are much smarter than I am and that are, understand that the, the worldwide markets, um, have a better grasp on it will tell me that I'm wrong. I, I think there, there's still in the wine world, like you want it to be in a bottle, you want to, pull the cork slash screw unscrew it, you know, some, but the bottle matters. Um, and, and so I, I don't know. I think those are the things for the wine world that they're evolving. It, it's much more consumer based, um, and, and lifestyle based. Yeah, no, I feel like wine is really at this sort of intersection between it's got such a rich tradition and history to it. And there are certain things I think, from that that will hold you know forever but then like you said it's so wide open right now um, and there's just so many possibilities I think for the future which is really exciting definitely um, but starting to sort of wrap up we wanted to ask if you have any advice for young people or students people around our age who are interested in wine or hospitality and potentially looking to do that as a career I, I think there's you know, sort of along the same lines, there's, there's a couple of things that I would say is, is one is mentorship. Find someone who, who's willing and able to, to mentor you. I think it's really important. And I think that comes in, in totally different forms and different people need mentorship in different ways. Um, and then I think finding a place 
where you can learn is really important and and figuring out where places will will take you to work you know whether it's during summer or christmas breaks or just getting hospitality needs people to get their hands dirty a little bit like i i, I think that um that like grassroots learning is really important um but mentorship and finding a place where someone will invest in you is really important i think the restaurant world is one that's so self-centered in a way that mentorship is still not as strong as it could be and um and i think that that is really changing in the last five ten years for sure as as, as i said before restaurants become better organizations um, there, there's more of that and, and people stay places longer. You know, I, I think that five, 10 years ago, if you, you had lifers and you had people that changed jobs like every six months. Um, and, and it wasn't always the lifers that were able to mentor you more often. It was sort of the other way around because the lifers were just interested in their paycheck and kind of coasting and, and whatever, again, generalizing a great deal, but. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's very exciting, especially as like young people coming up in the industry to see like all these new programs and like all these like new opportunities to be able to get involved and um, just learn um, from the people who've experienced it. Um, so the last thing we have is we call it the quick fire tasting menu. So it's just a series of fun questions and we'd love to hear the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, first thing is, what is your favorite midnight snack? Uh, ice cream. What flavor? Uh, salt, salted caramel. Uh, next one is best pairing. Best pairing, champagne and anything. <laughs> um, favorite wines to drink at the moment? Uh, Vivant Air, obviously. That's, that's my, uh, now, now I have to say that. Um, your favorite New York City takeout? Uh, I got to, I got to plug a good friend. So Milu, a new fast casual that's actually right by EMP that's opened by an amazing chef that I, I got to work with. And finally, who's someone in the industry that you think is doing something really cool that you want to give a shout out to? You know, I, I think I'll, I'll give like a really kind of a great answer, but one that he doesn't need more shout outs these days. Um, one is Carlton McCoy, who's the, the head of Heights Winery. Um, out in out in Napa, and he's um, I would say one of the the amazing professionals in in the wine industry for sure. I don't know; it's hard it's a hard answer to give because there are so many people that are doing amazing things right now. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the good answer is. I don't know. Every everyone in New York City, honestly, everyone in everyone at every restaurant anywhere in the world, honestly, right now needs a shout out because. The way the restaurant industry is right now is so tough. Um, and anyone who's trying to figure it out, has figured it out, working to figure it out, um, needs a shout out. And that, that, I guess that's the best answer I got. Yeah, no, it's a good answer. Um, well, thank you so much, Drake, for coming on our podcast. It was uh, so interesting to hear your story and to hear you talk about wines. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. That's a wrap on today's episode with Cedric Nicase. Keep up with Vivantaire and 11 Madison Park at Vivantaire and at 11 Madison Park on Instagram. And make sure you snag a bottle of Vivantaire when you get the chance. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Elena Cho. And I'm Maggie Tang. And this is Gourmand.